Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. We all have a moment, I think, when we woke up or have woken up to the climate crisis. Mine, I've documented on this show before, was last week in the Bay Area when I woke up at 8 a.m. and it was still dark and it remained dark all day. The sky was a a horribly dark orange because of the the forest fires to the north. Uh, And it's clear that the environment is playing an increasingly central role, not only in, quote unquote, the environment, but in our politics and culture. John Freeman is an old friend of mine. He'll be well known to you. He was the former editor of of Granta. Um, And he's the editor of a a trilogy of books, for Penguin, uh, Two Americas, Two Cities, and now he's come out with Two Planets about the environment. From his introduction to this remarkable collection of essays, I get the sense that John's wake-up, or one of the wake-up calls uh, to the environmental crisis, was when he was in Paris, and it was 109 degrees. John, what was Paris like when it was baking at 109 degrees? Yeah, that was hard to believe just one one summer ago. Absolutely unlivable, to be honest. I mean, five, I think, people died that day. And it just has become increasingly normal everywhere to have record weather events in every season all year round, whether it's high low temperatures or high winds. Or right now there was, I think, five concurrent uh category two hurricanes in the Atlantic at the same time. And these were all symptoms of the climate crisis that um, climatologists predicted would come. But because of the way that we're built, I think, to build coherent realities out of, uh, out of what we can observe. And I think we've, we've been in denial um, about the fact that it's become catastrophic uh, in, in many ways. And I put this book together to try to highlight the fact that it's been catastrophic for some other parts of the globe outside of metropolitan centers like Paris or New York for a long time. And that those places have been paying the climate bills of, of the West for a long time. Yeah, we had Mario Alejandro Ariza on, on the show a couple of months ago writing about Disposable City, which I think focuses on, on your themes about Miami. Uh, two planets, uh, John. Uh, what are these planets? How, how, how do we describe them? These two separate, almost uh, foreign planets to one another? Well, there's a couple ways. One is the, the global north and the global south. And the global south has been paying the climate bills of the global north for a long time. And as a result of this, there's been climate upheaval, uh, government upheaval, civil wars and migration, which is beginning to make climate change, not just uh, an issue of the environment, but about um, nationalism and states and who, be, who can be a citizen and population movements. Another thing that I think 
is uh, basically about two planets. You can have two planets within the same city. So people living uh, on one side of the Rio Cholo in, in Argentina and in Buenos Aires, um, as Mariana Enriquez describes it, they can pretty much go to work, go to school, take their kids to school, have some aberrant flooding uh, here and there. Um, but the, the bills of climate change are not being paid um, at catastrophic levels. Whereas to people who live on the other side of the river where it floods, where it um, has been flooding and also just rotten for a long time, um, used to be where the slaughterhouses were, uh, those populations don't really have a choice to treat climate change as, a, as an idea. Um, it's been a reality for some time. And two ideologies as well uh, that you introduce in the book, the ideology of nationalism and globalization. And you suggest that the, 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 the nationalism ideology is itself doing great damage to the environment. And the only way to, to, to approach, to confront, and of course fix our environmental catastrophe is with a, a, a globalized approach. Your book is particularly global. Um, how central do you place the ideology of xenophobia and nationalism in our current environmental crisis? I think it's reactive um, in the sense that uh, many countries are in better shape than other countries. And the ones that are in better shape going into the climate crisis, and amazingly, the United States, in spite of what's happening in California, Alabama, and Louisiana this week, um, has a but has a better climate outlook than many parts of the rest of the world. But those countries are the ones that have begun to drum up xenophobia and, and nationalism because it is, a, it is one of the places that pe people will go. The dry corridor in Central America where farming has been deeply disrupted by climate changes has sent people fleeing north for a better life, for a chance to work. Um, and that those sort of climate refugees, if you will, are some of the people that we're turning back. Um, it, it's all too easy to, to um, paint all Southern migrants coming North into the United States as fleeing crime and violence. I mean, some of them are just fleeing climate change. And because we um, start talking about xenophobia uh, and we start using those symbols and tropes, it becomes very hard to have a more complicated discussion. And it's the same in Europe. Um, you know, when you start talking about terrorism, uh, it becomes very difficult to start talking about, well, you know, because of the ways we've used energy in Europe for the last two centuries, some of the countries in, uh, in the Middle East and Sub-Saharan Africa are no longer uh, viable climates for farming and people need to leave. Certainly the, the Syrian crisis, uh, the, the Syrian civil war, uh, one of the central causes, I think, is an environmental one of, of, of the absence of water and of the impact of that on, on its economy and demography. Yeah, absolutely. And that's going to be the case for California as well, um, a state that depends heavily on shipping water up and down its coastlines and into the interior for farmland. So I should expect, uh, John, many more dark mornings and afternoons in future. I'm afraid so. I mean, that seems to be the case that the, that the fire season now will be virtually year round. Um, 
and that there is going to be large population movements uh, within the state of California as a result of this. And, you know, population movements and nationalism do not go together. Um, and and they, they are incompatible. Um, people, people will have to move. Um, they have no other choice. And so um, part of this book is uh, people writing from the frontiers of the climate crisis, where in some places it's been for decades, like in Bangladesh or uh, parts of Sub-Saharan Africa, and describing um, what's been done to adapt and, and what's being done as people leave. I mean, one of my favorite pieces is by uh, a Turkish novelist, and he describes how he used to work um, in, in a rural area far outside of Istanbul, and that the people from the village over were the strangers when he was there. Um, this is Arnam Sanmez. Uh, and 20 years later, he goes back and, and the people um, who are now the new strangers are the Syrians who come all the way up into Turkey to find, find work. And you know, that, that, that is an adaptation, but it becomes a, a very tricky one when the government of Turkey starts demonizing Syrians. John, uh, earlier this week, we had the scholar John, uh, sorry, Derek Black on the show, the education scholar, arguing that uh, radical right-wing forces associated with the, the Koch brothers have essentially looted the state, the educational state. Uh, my sense from your book, and particularly from your introduction, is that the same is happening with the environment. The wealthy and the selfish are essentially looting the environment. Let me quote something from your wonderful introduction. You, you write, we're so deep in this crisis and the stakes are so high, it feels as if a certain powerful segment of the population has simply decided to take what it can. Is there an element of environmental looting going on around the world from the wealthy, irresponsible class? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, we've got a handful of people worth half the population in the United States. Uh, they control vast resources. Um, and the government is enacting and putting through policies that no one believes in. I mean, it's put aside the, the, the environment, I mean, 90% of the population of the United States uh, approves of the post office, and yet the very height of the government is going against it. But that's especially true of how the, the environment's been used um, and been treated like a resource around the world. Um, and, you know, I think people are hungry for change and solutions. Uh, the, the big barrier to using more solar and wind power is technology. Uh, and the longer that governments like the United States continues to um, cozy up to the, the energy industry, um, the longer it's going to take to develop those technologies. Uh, it's not as if the, the energy industry is going to make a sudden um, in, enlightened change of its own accord. They're, they're going to drill and provide oil and natural gas in ways that are going to destroy the environment until they're told not to and prevented from doing so. And so the, we're, we're in a position now where governments um, are at a turning point. And that, that reminds me of the, the 1920s, you know, and the beginning of the trust busting era, uh, you know, the beginning of the expansion of the welfare state in the United States. Uh, because without that, um, essentially the government will be providing 
for a very, very, very small group of its population while the rest of us pay for it. I like your introduction, John, to the book in which you describe the Paris catacombs as being a, 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 a compelling example of very significant government investment in a crisis. You talk about a French uh, architect, Guillermo, who essentially rebuilt an underground Paris. What can we learn from the catacombs, the 19th century French, uh, the pa Parisian catacombs, about our 21st century environmental crisis? Well, the, uh, one lesson I took from that, essentially Paris was honeycombed beneath its surface as a result of quarries being dug within the city. And so at a certain point at the, you know, the 19th century, the city was collapsing in on it itself. Um, and so the, the government hired an architect who spent the rest of his life, four decades underground, building these arcades, which would become the catacombs um, in order to support the, the city. And while what looked beautiful on, on the top um, was rotten from beneath, and that is very much, I think, the case of a lot of world economies. And one thing I took from that was that um, the government is the only ent entity, an institution, which can intervene on a catastrophic level. Um, as much as I believe in community justice and uh, you know, the social justice being pursued locally, um, you do need the power of a, of a large federal government in order to make um, changes by law. And in the last 20 years, uh, but it's, you know, the, the, the US government, for example, has really walked away from its responsibility in order to give more um, to the en energy industry. And that's been the case the world over. Uh, and, you know, in a time when nationalism um, is on the rise, it, let us be clear that nationalism does not mean a strong state government. Uh, in, in many cases, nationalism often means um, a very strong state executive uh, and a weak state government. Uh, but a strong national government needs to be uh, around in order for um, nations all over the world to police the industries, which have become, in many cases, more powerful than the states themselves. Is this a theme you in in the collection? You've you 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 you've put together thirty six writers from around the world, m many very distinguished, uh, Margaret Atwood, for example, um, to write about this. What what common themes were there? We can't talk obviously about each writer, but I'm interested in in collective themes from these thirty six writers in 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 your anthology. Hmm. Well, there is one about the sort of balance between the collective and the personal. And, you know, the, 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 the melting of the glaciers that are in Iceland and the melting of the glaciers, which are in the Himalayas, which provide water for over a billion people, um, are, the, are being caused by the actions of a much smaller percentage of the globe, and it will affect a large number of people. And so we're, what we're seeing across these pieces are people being affected by actions taken very far from them. Corruption is a theme. Um, one of the pieces in here is about the explosions of the Lebanese street sewers and sort of mount, fountains of excrement um, because the, the state is corrupt and allows overdevelopment of the Corniche around the, the seawater. Uh, more buildings being built um, than the, the sewers can handle. 
because people take bribes. Um, but as a result, the city um, sewer, sewage system has just uh, exploded several times. And this piece was written a year ago, but it's very current in, in light of what happened a month ago in the port of, of Beirut. Another thing that comes to mind um, is migration. Um, you know, I mentioned the piece by Burnham Sanmez. Um, some people can't move. Uh, there's a piece in here by a Colombian journalist, uh, Juan Miguel Alvarez, about uh, people who don't move in spite of being warned multiple times that landslides are coming in Colombia. And it's because they, they don't have anywhere else to go. Um, you know, and so they're not taking a chance because they're risk takers. They're, they're, the big risk has been to, um, to try to get out of um, poverty and to get into a, a stable middle-class life where they own homes. And so they're not gonna leave their homes in spite of the, the fact that they're very likely gonna be washed away and then they are. Has our 20th or early 21st century elite failed us on this? We've had conversations with people like David Goodhart uh, and, and, and an upcoming one with Michael Sandel about the crisis and failure of the, the meritocracy. Do we need a new elite to confront this? Or perhaps we don't need an elite at all. We need to rethink the very nature of government and of the responsibility of citizens. Yeah, I was talking to several people that wrote for the anthology. Um, Edwidge Dandika, who describes the sort of corruption of, of a petrodollar system in Haiti that was supposed to benefit people, but was basically robbed from by the government. Um, I, I, you know, we, we can change our habits to some degree. We can stop flying as much. We can recycle and not use plastic. We can, you know, try to eat less meat. Um, but the, in order to really beat back climate change and to, to keep to the two degree increase in temperature that the Paris Climate Accords was trying to hold um, industrial countries to, it, it has to be done at a government level. So it's not necessarily the elite because in some cases um, the government is full of outsiders uh, or it can be, um, but government itself has really let us down here. And, and given the way that the Paris Climate Accords were gutted, you know, a lot of that responsibility falls in the hands of the United States as well as, as China and Russia, um, who are among the more fervent uh, <laughs> opponents of, of, of following um, what the Paris Climate Accords were about. I'm guessing, John, that the vast majority of people watching or listening to this are not going to be voting for Trump in the election. Um, and, and, and if they are, we, we probably can't convince them otherwise. Um, if Biden is indeed elected, how, how realistically can we expect some sort of Green New Deal, even if he doesn't use that language? And if Joe Biden, who's somewhere in some basement in Delaware, maybe he's watching this, what advice would you give him? What is doable realistically uh, in, a, in, a, in a Biden presidency? I think people, I think a Green New Deal is possible. It is needed. Uh, there's support for it. Um, Kamala Harris was certainly behind it. Uh, and I think if they get elected, they have to act as if there's a mandate. When Barack Obama was elected, I think he put a lot of stock in um, Doris Kearns Goodwin's book about Lincoln, um, Team of Rivals, in which Lincoln brought in 
his former competitors into his cabinet to sort of bring the country back together again. And that, that is Obama's way. I think he was, a, he was trying to unite the government and he paid the price. Uh, he, he lost a lot of his legislative battles because he essentially handed over his power to the other side. So if I were to give a future President Biden <laughs> some advice, it would be don't do that. Um, use the power that you have uh, and to try to get major changes through because the, there's a, a real need to make vast, um, less incremental changes. I mean, and there, we will not prevent a, a, two, a more than two degree increase in global temperatures with incremental change. It has to be massive reductions in um, drilling. Uh, Joe Biden has been defending his, his uh, willingness to support fracking. Um, and you know, I think hopefully that is an election ploy versus a, a policy, um, but we'll see. Uh, but my, my main advice is, is not to hand over the power he gets by elect, uh, being elected uh, with the idea that he will be able to debate um, with the right wing, uh, because the last 20 years have proven that that's, that's impossible. John, let's leave everyone on a cheerful note. Uh, let's say nothing, nothing changes. Let's say Trump is reelected or Biden is elected and he does nothing on the environment. What, what is going to happen? in 25 years? What will the world look like if we don't address this crisis now? I wish I could say that that was um, a story with a happy ending, but... Uh, yeah, I'm, of course, joking. I mean, it's, it's anything <laughs> but cheerful. It's, 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 I mean, it's the apocalypse. It's, it's yeah. your, your opportunity to, to paint a dystopia, to warn people of, of, of the stakes here. I wish, I wish, dy wish dystopian... Um, we're living in a dystopia. We are in it right now, and other parts of the world have been in it, in it for some time. Um, but imagine if California had fires like this all year round. Imagine if Miami was underwater. Sections of North and South Carolina cities, uh, small towns washed away, essentially. Uh, tens of millions of Americans moving um, to get to uh, safer places to live, vast parts of Asia, um, beginning to be underwater uh, with 20, 30, 40 million people on the move. Um, it's not a pretty picture. Uh, and um, we can't leave, we can't wish this away by magical thinking. Uh, it, it, the, the, the change will have, have to happen almost immediately. And otherwise we're looking at, you know, as David Attenborough proved in his, recent documentary, we're looking at a possible species die-off of over a million species. And we know that biodiversity is essential to our long-term and even short-term health on the planet. So let's, let's try to live like it, like it matters. Truly chilling. And if you want to be chilled more, and we all need to, to be chilled on this front, uh, we need to read Tales of Two Planets stories of climate change and inequality in a divided world edited by uh, john freeman um john finally in addition to your book uh, you're in your as everyone can see you're in your 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 abode in uh, chelsea on Ma in manhattan uh everyone's stuck at home lots of opportunity to read uh, as the 
former editor of Granter and a much published author. What else should people be reading in this lockdown? Um, I just recently read uh, for the first time uh, Talib Saleh's Season of Migration to the North. It's a short novel published uh, in, in Arabic in 1966 and in English in 1969 in the Heinemann African Writers Series. And it's one of the best novels about uh, the collision of East and West I've ever read. Uh, basically, a guy comes home from seven years away, having been li living in England, and he discovers that in his small village in Sudan, uh, there's another man um, who's been basically hiding in plain sight as having had a similar trajectory. And their stories develop entwined, and you realize uh, that there are many reasons why people need to move and need to leave where they're from. Um, and I think the, my hope with our discussion of the climate crisis is that it begins to involve many things other than policy and government and technology and, and science. It, it's also involved in culture and what, um, what kind of assumptions a culture which is at the center makes of, of people that travel to it. The other book I would recommend is um, A Certain Clarity, uh, which is Selected Poems by Lawrence Joseph. Uh, and he's one of the best poets about work and labor um, that I've ever read. Uh, he's, he's, a, a, he's in the collection as well, isn't he? In the, he is, yeah, he has a, a, a terrific poem about Trump. Um, and this is uh, his Selected Poems. It's over 50 years. He grew up as the son of a Lebanese Syrian grocer and Detroit in the 1960s, kind of schooled in the riots of that era and, uh, and Michigan Law School, he became a lawyer. Uh, and across five decades of work, he thinks about the gradual uh, diminishment of labor as a, as a concept, as something that's valued and, and becomes almost a, a digital commodity. Uh, and it, he, he writes this into poems which are strikingly um, uh, Blakey and uh, beautiful. Um, they're illuminated um, and, and visionary about what, what sort of world we're making for ourselves where the human body is far less valuable than, um, than the digital component of it. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.